Good day, everybody. I'm David Irvin. I'm a leadership development specialist and a best-selling author, and we want to welcome you to the Leaders Navigator podcast. What's uniquely special is that I'm doing this podcast together with my daughter, Haley, and I'm super excited about this opportunity to work jointly on this project that we are both we are both so passionate about. Haley, it's always good to see you. Likewise, Dad. Likewise. Another, another episode. Woohoo! I've got my voice back for this one, so that's good. That's good. And you're in the middle of an ice storm. Yeah, this moving to Ontario, this is a, a new weather phenomenon that the dry old prairies just don't get. Um, in which case there's just the, the temperature ranges between minus one degree Celsius and one degree Celsius all day and ice just piles up. So like even right now, I'm looking out my office window and it's just a sheet of ice. So I can't actually see it. It's too bad. It's not permanent. It actually makes a really nice like privacy screen. However, uh, just sheets of ice. There's probably a couple inches of ice on the roads. It's there's icicles everywhere. Um, there's a really satisfying feeling when you roll down the the window and you can like punch through the like sort of new window of ice that's been created. Um, so it makes walking quite tricky, but it's a nice day to stay curled up inside. And being this is April, spring is really resisting coming out of hibernation. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And so. we are Canadians after all. So we bond around talking about the weather. This is true. You probably noticed that yeah. we spend a lot of our episodes beginning with talking about the weather. This is a good point. This is a good point. <laughs> What's the weather like over there? I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. It's a very, uh, there's something to studying Canadian literature, you know, knowing me with my, you know, English background. Um, there's a huge theme in Canadian literature, and that's the weather and nature um, in Canadian lit. So, um, there was actually like a, a very famous Canadian book that was published in the last 40 years, I'd say very controversial book about a woman who falls in love with a bear, um, out in nature. And it's this big Canadian book, but anyway, something about Canadian culture and nature and the weather and uh, who knows? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, Dad, well, uh, not related at all, but you were talking about doing a, an episode today on addiction. Well, it's something I've had some experience with. And as you know, my journey through recovery from addiction. So I thought it might be uh, insightful to start a conversation about that with our listeners and to shed some light on addiction. Uh, I think if we're going to talk about addiction, I need to say right up front that uh, we are not here as experts. Uh, we're going we're gonna to share our own experience. My experience is very anecdotal. It's, it's my experience. And uh, you can take uh, from it what is helpful to you. So you've, uh, I guess my biggest question is, you know, when did you sort of discover that you were, you had sort of addictive tendencies or when did addiction start to rear its ugly head for you, dad? Well, that's a very good question. First of all, there wasn't any alcohol or drugs in our home because we lived in a very fundamentalist religious family uh, where we, what we had was lots of food. And so I, I was very drawn to food as a way of not just enjoying food, but I actually use food as a way of coping with my life. I use food to deal with the trauma. I didn't understand it at the time. I just knew I was always hungry. Um, I also had this craving to help people, um, and it turned into a helping profession. But in the origin, the origins of it were I, I tried to be the family therapist when I was eight years old, 
to mm-hmm. stop my parents from fighting. I mean, this is the dark side of our family. There was lots of love, but I, you know, the lack of safety, I've talked about that here. But um, but my way of of trying to survive was to help. And it really wasn't loving. It looked caring and it looked loving, but it was my uh, uh, my need to help as a way of feeling safe and as a way of developing an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it turned into burnout when I was a family therapist because I, I identified with, I got to help. And so I ended up seeing sometimes over 40 families a week because I didn't have any boundaries. And I, I actually called myself kind of jokingly in those days, a helpaholic. I kind of like I needed to help. So I started to get aware of that tendency uh, in my therapy practice. I also checked myself into a uh, alcohol treatment center for a week when I was a therapist, not as an alcoholic, but I went in as a therapist to learn about alcoholism. And it was really interesting because I was in a lot of denial about how I was using food and helping as a way of dealing with my life. Um, And I was also using relations. I was going in and out of relationships and I was just using women in the same way that I used food in the same way that I used helping as a way of, of grounding myself as a way of feeling important as a way of having an identity And then I would get into a relationship for a certain length of time until it didn't work for me anymore, because I I define addiction as very self-centered. And Mm -hmm. so when it didn't serve my needs, then I exited the relationship. So I was in the middle of that. And it was interesting sitting in and I got invited into these AA meetings for the first time in my life. And I actually really identified with the people who were in that treatment. It was at the Claire's Home Treatment Facility for alcoholism. And I really identified, but I didn't have an alcohol problem. And so I could say, well, I, yeah, but it's not me. I couldn't, I, I, uh, I don't really belong here, but there was a big part of me that really felt at home in that place and really felt at home with those drunks. They invited me in and they made it safe for me. Um, and I wasn't, you know, I was there as a therapist, but I was pretty honest and pretty open and pretty transparent with what was going on. And I really felt a part of that community. I was really welcomed there. But then I went back to my lifestyle and my overhelping and no boundaries and enabling people and using relationships and uh, eating a lot and exercising a lot to counter that. So then how did you, at what point did you realize, especially I'm thinking with like the eating and exercising, like at what point did you actually like stop and say, oh, this is an addiction and I need to get help. I keep, this is not a mess I can get myself out of. At what point did you actually like, what, what was rock bottom? I don't know if it was rock bottom. Maybe that sounds like, Oh no, that's a good word. Um, I always, I always say that addiction for me, you have to be really careful about calling some, we call television an addiction, relationships an addiction, uh, reading novels an addiction. And I'm really careful about addiction because it starts with an escape. We escape the difficulty of life and we learn it as a coping mechanism. But if it is an addiction, it will progress and it will reach a point where your life gets unmanageable. Now, the thing is, you get to define what that point is and you get to define um, uh, what unmanageability is. It's impacting my relationships. It's impacting my work. It's impacting my well-being. 
And when it's crossed that line into saying, my life is unmanageable because of the substance I'm taking. So the very thing that I'm using to escape life from is actually now causing my problems. Hmm. And when that reaches a point of unmanageability, then that's the point that I, I say, you've crossed the line into addiction. And once you've crossed the line into addiction, and I'm philosophizing a little bit, and then I'll go back to my experience. Yeah. Well, once you've crossed the line into addiction, you can't go back. And the only way of um, healing from that is complete abstinence, if you've crossed that line. So for example, uh, we probably all go home and watch too much Netflix as a way of coping with our day. But we don't have to abstain from Netflix. Be we could limit it, we can put some boundaries on it, but you can moderate it because it's not an addiction. But if you reach a point where watching Netflix makes your life unmanageable, its impact, it's causing a divorce, and what, however you want to define it as calling it unmanageable, then you need to find a way to not watch Netflix, at least for a time, to deal with the underlying root of what's creating that addiction to begin with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah. go ahead and then no, I'll, I'll say, go back and tell my story. I see that a little bit. I had to, um, like, I was really noticing that you know, I was really addicted to, um, Instagram. Um, and part of that, honestly, I'm, I know that's part of it is my fault, but I also want to blame these institutions that create these apps that make it addictive on purpose, um, that, that cause the, that dopamine release, um, and the, you know, the infinite scroll and how easy it is just consume and consume and consume and consume and consume, um, and how addictive and, and pleasurable it is to get those notifications. Um, so, you know, I, I, I had to use the screen time, um, function on my phone where I only get 15 minutes a day. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it was just, it, it was just really, that just made me think of that. Um, but yeah, so for, for food and, and exercise, for instance, um, at, you know, what, what point did you realize, like, this is, this is out of control for me? Well, I think the point, the point came and let me, let me just respond. We have a, it's, it's part of the human condition. Addiction has been around for as long as humans have been here. Um, but it's become, you know, it's so accessible to us, you know, you, we, you know, uh, you know, our devices, uh, dopamine hits, uh, shopping, there's so much that is surrounding us that makes it easy to escape from reality. And uh, I think what I would invite people, and I want to just remember to say this in this call, if any of you are feeling like you're struggling with an addiction, it's it, if you're in the grip of an addiction, you're not alone. And we would, uh, you know, I would certainly reach out in my, this is what I do I spend 20 hours a week working with addicts and it's certainly something that I would is in my volunteer work would, would uh, respond to if anybody wants to reach out. Were you going to say something, Haley? Yeah, I was just going to say like um, from an evolution perspective, I was doing some research on it um, for this, for one of the social science courses that I was teaching. Um, and the, they're, they're starting to understand it as like early humans um, this dopamine release, we used to associate it as like purely just pleasure, right? So things that cause dopamine releases uh, were pleasure activities. Um, so everything from, you know, having sex to uh, having junk food to or like high 
calorie dense food, um, to anything that was pleasure building, but now we're understanding it more as it's something deeper than just pleasure building. It's, it's your brain saying, I need to make this a memorable experience. It's about like learning deeply through that. And that's what our brain gets hooked on. It's that idea of like needing to remember that, which often gets confused with pleasure often. Um, but it's those, those high levels of emotions because that actually used to be important to our survival, right? Things like having sex and calorie rich foods were essential to our species survival, right? Uh, remembering that, you know, like those, those adrenaline rushes about, you know, going up to, uh, you know, fighting off a predator, the fight or flight instinct, those were important and memorable. We needed to remember that so that we could literally survive. But now when we're in a, a society that no longer has life and death on a daily basis, right? Uh, Our brains haven't evolved yet to the point where our society is. Um, So it's really not us as individuals, our fault. And I I hear a lot of people talk about, and I'm sure you can attest this too, um, addiction being a a personal issue. It's, it's a social issue, right? It's not a moral failing. It's, 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 um, it's a, it's a way of our evolution that hasn't caught up to us yet. Well, a hundred percent. And I'm going to speak to it as a personal challenge. Yeah, uh, I won't speak to it because I'm not smart enough to talk about it from a, uh, an evolutionary or a societal mm-hmm. challenge, even though I've got some opinions about that. Mm-hmm. But what I do have the most experience with is my own my own journey through this. So it it I have been a seeker all my life. There's been some kind of a, an, a hole in me uh, that I've tried to fill. I've tried to fill it um, in retrospect, looking back, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't have used necessarily the word addiction in those days, but all of my life I've been going, I've gone to therapy, I've read self-help books, I've been to workshops, there's been a hunger and every one of those experiences came out of, I came out of it with a residue of growth. But here's what would happen, I'd get all these insights going to therapy, and then I would stop at the at a convenience store and binge after my therapy sessions. Hmm. And then I would start to beat myself up because I hated myself for turning to food. And then I would eat more because I was hating myself for turning to food. And it became very cyclical. And so all of those awarenesses that came up in my therapy session got drowned in the consumption of food. And I never talked about my food in any of those therapy sessions. Now, where it showed up for me was two weeks of clinical depression, lying in the middle of the, you know, lying on a couch in the middle of the living room floor in a fetal position. And all I did for two weeks was go back and forth from the fridge and eat. You know, we, we just talked about watching the whale uh, last weekend, I actually can really identify with that. He was probably 600 pounds. The guy that was consuming those pizzas. I have done that with food, but the thing for me is that then I would wake up the next morning because I also had addiction to, to, uh, perfection. I wanted to have a perfect body. Now there's a war that went on inside of me all the time. I wanted a perfect body but I had a, a craving for perfection, but I had a craving for food. And that war was making me crazy. It was going, it went on in my head for 20, probably 25 years. It started when I was a teenager and I started to get 
conscious of my body. And it was, I believe it was a response to the trauma in our family. Now, there was something in my makeup. I'm not sure. I don't believe I was born with this propensity, but there was something in, you know, and I could, I could track it back to a lack of bonding with my mother uh, because she was in such grief when I was an infant and in my early, in my early formative years. But something was missing for me that this whole, this emotional hole that I strove for, and I, I strove to get it from relationships, you know, and, and from food. And then I found running as a teenager. And then I could find a way of, it was what, what I've come to know now is exercise bulimia. I used exercise as a way of coping with my life. I didn't just use it to express myself. And then what happened was those endorphins, if they're a little bit, if a few endorphins feel good, I want more of this. And then what would happen is that I started to uh, exercise excessively and then I'm more and more and more and then I would get injured. And then when I couldn't run, I would eat for two or three months. And in those days, I would I would gain five or 10 pounds in two or three months. And then I would hate myself because I was gaining all that weight. And then when I got better, I would go back to running and it became cyclical. And then, but, and the, the, the thing I've learned about addiction is that it's progressive. So what was a five pound variation a year, maybe as a teenager felt like a hundred, that five pound variation went to 10 pounds, 15 pounds. And by the time I was 40, my weight was fluctuating 50 to 60 pounds a year. I was mm. binging. I was, and then I crossed the line into bulimia. And then I also know the anorexic side of this. So, you know, if, and, and I was racing at my top peak, I was 20 pounds lighter than I am now. And I thought I was too fat. I was probably four to five pounds body, uh, uh, 45, four to five uh, percent body fat. And I thought I was too fat, but mm -hmm. I was excelling in distance running at the height in my late thirties, running marathons, um, running six minute marathons. But what would happen is I was I would crash uh, whenever I got injured uh, or I would just binge in between. So this cycle went on. So when I watch a movie like The Whale, I'm that guy. That's me, but I just hid it. I kept it undercover because of I because of my addiction to exercise. And I got all this reinforcement for how fast I was. But it really came to a head with this two weeks of depression. And your mother really said, listen, I can't help you. She was trying to help me with my depression. She was trying to help. And she said, finally, I can't help you with this. And I just can't be around you. Uh, I love you too much. I can't be around you. It's a very emotional time for me. And I was furious. But that's when I said, I need to go and get help. Coincidentally, I was working with a, uh, a coach that was helping me with my business. And my business was really going in circles too, because this, this addiction was impacting every aspect of my life. And, um, and when he when we worked together for two, three months, and then finally, he says, listen, we're going to go for a walk. And he sat in the park bench, and he told me his story. And I found out he was a recovering alcoholic. And he took me to my first AA meeting back in uh, the early, it was 1996, and introduced me to a program that helped me with my food. And that program didn't work, but I have since found another program, another 12-step program 
that helped me understand the addiction to flour and to sugar and how I needed to start to weigh and measure my food. And really, uh, without a program in you weigh and measure your food, it's just another obsession. But I, I, I got a program to help me understand the underlying reason I put limits around my food and got a really good, strong sponsor and then started to work a program of recovery. And not only did it stabilize my weight, I mean, my weight hasn't fluctuated more than five pounds now in 26 years, but, but what stabilized my weight also paradoxically stabilized my moods because food was contributing to my depression. Uh, it was contributing to my highs, to my lows. I always say sugar brought me up and flour brought me down. And so it really impacted my moods. And there's certain foods that I have to completely abstain from because they just impact my mood so much. And I had to really quit my addiction to exercise. I actually stopped exercising for six months and learned how to deal with my life without turning to exercise as a way of coping with my life. And then I gradually got back into exercising more in a healthy way, uh, just like eating in a healthy way. So uh, it, it, it became turned into a program just like AA it turned into a program to help me with my food. And it really began to help me with all the aspects of my life. And that's why I keep going and it's why I keep giving back. So how does this 12-step program, I know it, it sets very strict limits, but this program I know, cause like, you know, you've been on this program essentially my whole life. Um, how else does it help addictions? Like, because obviously it's not just about setting limits on food. It's because this 12-step program I know is, is, is far more complex than that. It is. So you, you basically, you talk at the beginning, you talk to a sponsor every day. You have a really good, clear uh, program. And if, if, if anyone relates to this, feel free to reach out to me because I'm glad to extend my experience with this, whatever I can, if anybody can identify with this kind of a challenge in your life. Um, but it helps me with, any kind of overspending, for example, uh, it helps me with overworking. Uh, it helps me deal with all of my emotions. It helps me deal with what's going on in my life that's causing me to eat to begin with. Uh, it helps me when I get triggered from old trauma. It helps me deal with my anger. Um, you know, I came into this relationship with a lot of rage, um, you know, and it, this is intergenerational. Uh, the abuse that my mother went through, the abuse that my grandfather went through, the abuse that I went through, and the abuse that I was beginning to extend on my family. And I've understood that now that there's a difference between rage and anger. And just like there's certain foods that are unacceptable in my program, there's over, you know, and we define what that is. Uh, just like that, just like uh, there's certain foods to put parameters, that have to put parameters around my emotions. And rage is not ever acceptable in my family when I lose control of my anger. And so I had to learn how to work with my anger um, in such a way so that it didn't turn to rage, that when I get activated, raging on people, losing, and I define rage as just anger that's completely out of control. It's actually a different emotion than anger, uh, but it's never appropriate in a family. It's never appropriate in a relationship. And if you've got a rage issue, that is an addiction because we call that an emotional binge. Just like you can have a food binge, you have an emotional binge and you let your emotions take over. So what I learned to do was to moder uh, to uh, uh, deal with activated emotion. So how do you deal with this when you get it? So this is something, and I 
something that I've had to learn. And, you know, we say in here that we're about as old as we are when we first experience emotionally about when we first experienced trauma. So my, you know, I came in here probably at an about emotional four-year-old level, and I've had to grow up in this program and learn because every problem in my life was ever dealt with. I just went for a run or I ate one or the other. And so I never really learned to deal with my emotional problems. I could help everybody else with theirs because I could intellectualize it, but I had to learn how to uh, deal with life on life's terms and learn how to grow up emotionally. So when I was facing some difficulty in, in my in a mar in my marriage with your mom, you know, instead of turning to food to deal with it, or instead of just going to work, or instead of just going to eat, or instead of just going to exercise, I have to stop and face it in an honest, respectful way, and learn how to be compassionate, but also honest. So these are the things that I that the program has really helped me with. And it's really, and the interesting thing is it's really stabilized my moods. I mean, I, I, mean, I have the gift of my dad's uh, manic depression tendencies. I know that that is a genetic component to some degree. Um, and I know that depression certainly is, is uh, has a genetic component. And it's really helped monitor my and manage my depression. I don't think there's a cure, just like I don't believe there's a cure for this. Uh, for addiction, but we I have to, but there, but we can heal from it. There's a what we call a daily reprieve where you can work with it on a daily basis, and and uh, and you know I was told by a doctor uh, years ago that the key to a long and happy life is to get diagnosed with a chronic life threatening illness and have to take care of it every day of your life, and that's he was actually referring to diabetes. But this is actually what I've learned in my recovery. This is a chronic life-threatening illness, and I have to take care of it. I have to be attentive to it every day. I have people to call every day to check in on my mental health. Um, I've got daily quiet time, meditation, um, daily disciplines in the program. Um, uh, you know, I, I have to be relentless about what time I go to bed to make sure I get enough sleep. And so these daily disciplines to look after my depressive addictive tendencies have actually helped me be healthier today than I probably ever have been. Do you ever think of a world where you wouldn't be on the 12 step program? Do you think that you could ever like let go of the program or would you ever want to now that you've had this, this level of healing or is it just part of your life now? It's just uh, part of my life. And I, and, and it gives me a place in life. It gives me a purpose. It gives me mm -hmm. something to give back to because at this point it's, it's about keeping it by giving it away. And so I have to keep giving it away. And so I really didn't, wouldn't have any interest in living without it because it, I, what I've decided Haley is that I'm going to need some kind of a program in my life to help keep me accountable to help me. So it's, if it's not this, it's going to be something else. I remember your mom said, I asked your mom once, I said, working this program is kind of like a part-time job. It's about 20 hours a week that I give it away and I work with my sponsees. You know, this, I've, you know, you've seen me on my, on my calls a lot. I spend, you know, the mm -hmm. first hour of my day, uh, basically, you know, helping other people on in the morning, helping them with their food and so forth. And I said, I said to my mother, you know, or to, to your mother, I said to Val, um, you know, when I was dieting and binging and 
And uh, all the exercise, I was spending 20 hours a week doing that. I said, what's the difference? And she said, well, at least now you're doing something useful. Yeah. So at least now you're giving something back. But I think we all, you know, and, and I'm not saying this is the only program. I, I, I'll just tell you a little side story here, uh, too, that I, um, so I work with those, this Wayfinders uh, Society uh, that helps uh, first, uh, first responders and uh, veterans who have PTSD help build a community for them to get supported. And most of them have struggled with some kind of an addiction. And I was just talking to a fellow the other day who's part of the community. And he says, I have really gotten off alcohol. I, I no longer drink and I've lost. So what, what you got to do is what, a, what the program does is it helps you get free of the desire. It gets rid of the craving. It doesn't like a diet pushes the food down. But if you don't deal with the desire of what's there to begin with, of why you ate, it'll just keep coming back again. That's why when you cross the line into addiction, diets never work because mm -hmm. you're just suppressing it. So he said, yeah, I've really gotten free of alcohol. And I said, well, did you, did you, get, did you go through AA? And he said, no, um, no, I didn't go through a 12-step program. I said, well, how did you do that? And he, well, he worked with a therapist three times a week for 15 years. Now, if you're going to invest that much time, that's called a program. Mm -hmm. And he got free of it that way. But when you really have crossed the, your line, you, you can't just be in denial about it. And what often happens is that maybe you can stop the drinking, but if you don't change the personality of why you drank to begin with, you end up with a dry, living with a dry drunk. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same as behavior problems with kids, right? You can't solve long, like long-term behavior problems with kids without understanding you know, what's actually causing the behavior in the first place. You have to start with that. It's the exact same problem. It's exactly. the issue. I guess. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I'm happy uh, to answer any more questions. That's my, that's my experience. What is it like? My question is, is like, how, how come by giving up power and saying, I need help. So you're like relinquishing power. How is in that in it, even in of itself empowering? Oh, it's it seems a, very, a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah, it's very, it's very counterintuitive. And you have to know the life, the world of an addict to really be able to answer that. Because it is a spiritual program, not a religious program. It doesn't matter whether you go to church or not. But we do believe that you have to find some kind of a power, even if that power is in the fellowship, you know, even if it's just in relationship that you're in, even if it's, uh, you know, some inanimate object. You have to have some kind of power to help you with the power to want to eat and to use addictively. And so, um, so it, by accepting that you're powerless, which is the first step in the program, by accepting that you're powerless, what it does is it opens up the sense of you can't no longer keep controlling this. And it sets it up to have another power come into your life that paradoxically gives you the strength to deal with it. So for example, um, you know, just kneeling and just saying, I cannot deal with this. After my last binge, which was like 26 years ago, um, kneeling in front of, they say in AA that you, that you learn that you, uh, that you, you meet God when you're kneeling in front of the porcelain bowl and, mm -hmm. and, uh, that was actually my experience with food. That was my last binge. You know, I'd probably binged about six or seven hours and I just purged and kneeling there 
40 years old, you guys at downstairs, and I couldn't show up as a father, and I was completely spent. I said, I cannot do this. I can't manage this any longer. And I gave up. And at that moment, I decided to call one of the people that I had heard their story earlier that month, and I said, would you sponsor me? And by asking for help and accepting, I'm done. I can't manage this anymore. And the more desperate you are, the more the program will actually help you. Because when you're desperately um, at your bottom like that, then some kind of a power, and it starts in that relationship with a sponsor, some kind of a power comes into your life that says, you know what, this is a safe place for you and we can help you here. And something gives you some strength. And every day you take that step, I can't manage my life. And if I take, if I step into that addiction, my life will get unmanageable. I can't do it. See, a diet mentality is I'm going to manage my thoughts. And you push your thoughts down, but then they keep coming up. This is a program that says, you know what, you can't manage your food. And there's, you got to find some kind of a power. And I found that power, honestly, I found it in my phone calls. I also found it in my quiet time, just sitting and watching plants. And watching plants reach for light. And I thought, I can, I can foster, I can, I can foster a seed, but I can't produce a seed. There's something in that plant. Now you could rationalize and say, you know, that if you were a scientist, you could say there's a there's there's a, a, a genetic genome, uh, you know, configuration that photosynthesis, and I don't understand the world of plants. But if you look at it from a spiritual perspective, there's something in that plant. I cannot produce a plant. And what is that force within it, that animated force within a plant that reaches them toward an in, a, you know, a crack of light? Well, that's a, that is that animated force is in me. And I began to connect with that force and tie into that force when I had a food craving. And uh and I began to get strengthened by that and grow that force and allow that force to take, to take over my life and to help and give me strength. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got free of that um, compulsion and the obsession and the craving that's really in our body as much as it is, as it is in our mind. How have you, like, how does, like, with addiction, it's obviously you know, it's about being, it's, you know, it's, it's accepting that you're imperfect. So how, like, have you ever made any like mistakes in terms of, of food and, or any slip backs and things like that? And, and then how, how have you been able to say, Hey, yeah, this is not, you know, it's okay for me to, to slip up at this one point. That doesn't mean I'm a failure and then move on. How have you been? Able I, to I was pretty fortunate. I, 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 I went back and forth for about a year when mm -hmm. I first came in and went into relapse and back and forth. And a big part of my relapses had to do with the perpetuation of rage in my family. So there was a sense in my family growing up of this cycle of abuse and going into, going into food reinforced that cycle of imperfection. So we see this a lot in our program where people go into relapses. And what's re what we really try to stress is that we have to have clarity, we have to have boundaries without the shame. And you know, we're human, and we experience, you know, we're going to go into relapses, but we have to have that, that definitive precision around our food. But after that, everything outside of that is, is a work in progress. 
and is, you know, it's progress, not perfection, as we say in our program. So there's a humanness that comes into it in every aspect of our life. Um, and even with food, when you when you get off your food plan, um, you know, we just gently bring come back. But there is a diet mentality that says, oh, I'm going to fall off, and then I get back on, and I fall off, and I get back on. So we really want to help people get out of that cycle through compassion and through clarity. What would you say to somebody who's struggling with an addiction right now? I know you've kind of implied it already, but what would you say to somebody? Um, accept, who's accept it, accept that, you know what, you, you, if you've crossed the line into addiction, my experience is you can't do it alone. You can't get well alone. Find a community that can help you find a therapist uh, whether it's a 12-step program or therapy program, find some kind of a program that will help you accept it. Because if it's an addiction, it will get worse. And if you're not sure if you've crossed that line, just wait. Just wait. If it's an addiction, it will not get any easier. And if you're struggling with it, just be honest with yourself and be compassionate with yourself and reach out to find somebody. Somebody somewhere has been through what you've been through. And there's some help out there somewhere and uh, accept that it's there and accept that um, that you have to find some kind of a way to build boundaries around that addiction and work some kind of a program to help you with that. Otherwise, it will become destructive either to you or to the people that you care about or to both. Thanks for the vulnerability of sharing that story, Dad. That I know even too, like talking about, you know, eating disorders and and bulimia and binging, um, especially, you know, being a young man as well, right? Like there's the whole social stigma about that, right? And then, you know, you know, recognizing that, you know, just because it's food and not something more severe like alcohol, that it's still just as destructive and as an addiction, you know? I remember talking to my AA friends about what would kill us first, food or alcohol, um, and I don't think there's any question that alcohol is going to take you down faster, but this is a slow suicide. Mm -hmm. um, and I would, you know, I certainly, uh, we come back to the movie, The Whale, um, you know, it's a, it's a slow suicide, but it definitely uh, it is, a, is a suicide. And uh, I hope that my story has, has been helpful to people. I, you know, I've, it, I think one of the things that I've learned here is it's not my fault. I'm not a bad person because I can't manage my food because once you've crossed that line into addiction, discipline really doesn't help. Self-will doesn't really help you. Um, it'll help for a while, but it won't get rid of the desire. You really have to have that support that's necessary. So thank you for your interest. And uh, I hope that uh, you learned some things about your father in this conversation. I did. I always do. Every week. I always do, Dad. <laughs> so I've been doing most of the talking on this episode. What are you grateful for as we wrap this up? Oh, what am I grateful for? I'm grateful for, I think, just the the open dialogues that I'm just seeing both here right now with you, Dad, but also just in like the media. And um, I see this with my students and, and with friends of mine. Um, there's just so much more of a dialogue about mental health and about being vulnerable and about asking for health, help, sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, just, just the, that level of compassion self-compassion, but also compassion with other people as people are telling their stories. Uh, and I'm just really grateful because I don't think this was a place that existed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, certainly not more than that ago. Um, so I, I'm just, that's what I'm grateful for. Um, just because I think it's just, it's just going to help in the long run for everybody to be able to be more open about, about these kind of conversations. 
All this is coming out of the closet. We're starting to yeah. uh, really see it. And, you know, some days I do wish I had a more sexy addiction, like like alcohol or cocaine or something that was, you know, that was a little more sexy, but, you know, exercise and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and work and food uh, all combined are uh, certainly, you know, that's what I've been, that's what I've been given in life. So I've learned to embrace what, what has come to me. And I'm very grateful for a program. I'm grateful that I've worked a program that's kept my life stable and that I was grateful to raise kids in a, hopefully well an, an imperfectly sane father um <laughs> that was really i spent a great deal of time working on myself mm -hmm. uh because it went way beyond the food and i and i i'm also grateful because i and i get a little teary about this one but uh you and chandra and mom have always been very very supportive of my program you've never resisted mm -hmm. it um you've never you know you've never um you know, you've never done anything other than just support it and love me and respected me a great deal for this. And I am very, very grateful. You know, I feel like in some ways, it's a bit of a handicap for me. But mm -hmm. as I believe in life, and this is the authentic journey that I'll end off with is, you know, is whatever a challenge, you know, whatever curse you've been given will turn into your greatest gift. And uh, mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's what I appreciate that I've been valued. Uh, for this challenge, because it has felt like a handicap in my life, but because I, you know, you've had to sacrifice some things uh, to not be able to, uh, you know, to have every, you know, to, you know, because you got to, we got to look after my disciplines and my food, and yeah. I, you know, I have to go to bed early and so forth. But what's come out of that is a great deal of respect that I've and love that I felt for you, and I, I hope that I've been a better father because of it. Well, of course, and you've taught Shannon and I about, you know how to exercise in a way that's healthy and to find the value in exercise. Cause some of it's good, obviously too much is not good, but you know, like you've taught that to Shannon and I, and, you know, being able to share like what healthy eating means and let limits and boundaries. Like these are all important skills that we've learned from you. So, well, you know, I really, it's been really important not to make food a power struggle and, and to accept that, uh, you know, we, we tried to give you good food, but you can't force anybody to eat. You know, you can't prevent someone from becoming a food addict. And and I've learned that in here, you just let people make their own choices. But I, I just tell you, just in conclusion, how inspired I was when you ran that marathon and you did it so sanely, right? You didn't go crazy <laughs> with it. You had fun. I could see the smile on your face. I could <laughs> never run a marathon like that. For me, it had to be, you know, world-class or else nothing, right? And it, it was just so all or nothing. And and it looked good on the outside. Sure, I had some good times, but I, I saw how you, I mean, I had some good times on the finish, but I'm not sure that I really enjoyed it the way that you so the way that you did. So what brought me joy was <laughs> to see the joy in your experience with it. And it didn't really matter the place that you had. You just, you, you know, what place you came in or what yeah. your time was. <laughs> you just purely enjoyed it. And uh, you and Grace together. And it was just really a joy to see you to do that in a sane way. Thanks, Dad. I just found out that there's a, um, a halfling marathon that takes place on the on the set of Lord of the Rings in the Shire um, in New Zealand in March every year. And I know Shandra's getting married in March, which truly is really quite selfish of her to not consider my needs to run this marathon in the Shire. Really quite selfish of her. Um, however, nonetheless, that could be a really fun marathon for you and I to do together. And they have like orcs in costume and everything. And it finishes by having like a big meal at the big table in the inn. Anyway, sounds pretty <laughs> cool. It also looks very hilly because, you know, Hobbiton is known for its hills. However, nonetheless, what a more fun marathon than that one. G give me one. I dare you. 
I don't think there uh, is one. So that I could be one we can do. I would love to come and share that one with you. Wouldn't that be come fun? Watch you do that one. Oh man, yeah, with the mm -hmm. hobbits. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's a dream. Yeah. Listen, you be real. Stay safe, and uh, all the best in that ice storm out there. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. <laughs>